Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. <clears throat> if you want to make your way back to your seat, finish up that quick hello. Thanks for being so friendly. It's one of the greatest things about our church family. Take out your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. This middle section in the back, you can go grab one and take it, take it home with you. <clears throat> We've been walking through the book of Matthew, and I've got to confess, uh, taking these larger chunks of, of the book, instead of breaking up maybe one parable, but looking at a few in a row, has been wonderful to help me find themes across chapters and stories that maybe normally I didn't read together. I'd read smaller chunks of the book. But uh, it also means that sometimes I'm going to miss something that goes with, a, with the section. And so as much as I try to cross and check and find much smarter people than me, so I sit down to study Matthew 22 this week, and I read the first 14 verses, and I thought, oh, it would have been nice to preach that last week too, because that goes exactly in line with the parables that came before it. And actually, there's a section of three parables and, Matt, and it bleeds over into Matthew 22. And that's just one of those ways that when you read the chapter, sometimes you stop at the front of the chapter. Sometimes I stop at the front of the chapter and assume, okay, uh, these chapters were put here by Matthew, and they weren't. But actually, Matthew 22, 1 to 14, should have been included last week. It picks up the same exact kinds of themes where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about who really does belong in the kingdom of God. Now, after these three parables, Jesus in verse 15 in his teaching and in his interactions, uh, entertains three questions. There's three questions asked of Jesus, and then at the end, Jesus turns the tables around and he asks a question. And so this week, we're actually gonna pick up in verse 15 to look at these questions that are asked of Jesus, and then the one question Jesus turns around and asks the others. So, Matthew 22, verse 15, read with me. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left them and they went away. That same day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. First got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also, and the third, and so on, to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all married her. Jesus answered them, You're mistaken, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart 
with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer Jesus at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. God, this is your word and we are thankful for it. Would you please open up our hearts to receive your message for us this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You made your way here this morning to church, so I'm guessing that at some point in your life, you've asked some version of the question, what difference does Jesus make for my life? What difference does Jesus make for my life? That's a question many people have asked. Many people who've never come to church at all have asked that question. What, what difference could all of this make for me? Does it make any difference for me? Is this message, is this book, is this whole thing relevant for my life? And we ask that question because we want the answer. Maybe if you're here this morning, you want the answer to be yes. Maybe people ask that question and they desperately do not want the answer to be yes because they don't want to submit to all of this and this word and try to understand it and give their life over to someone else. But that's a question that really matters. Does this thing, does this book matter for my life? Does it make any difference right here, right now for the things I'm going through? Or maybe on the very opposite end of that spectrum. Maybe the Bible, Christianity, Jesus, the kingdom of God only makes a difference in our life right now. And it actually maybe says nothing about eternity, but maybe Jesus is just this great teacher with wise sayings, with a lot of things to apply and help smooth out some of the rough edges of life right now. But actually all the stuff it says about after death, that's just sort of this hocus pocus pocus magic that no one really knows, so ignore that, but take the stuff out of scripture that's so practical for your life and let's lean into those practical teachings. Well, which one is it? This is actually a really important question. Is the kingdom of God primarily about changing this world and making our lives different and better now? Or is the kingdom primarily about getting us out of this broken and awful world so that we can go somewhere else where then life will be better. I think the, the question that's posed underneath all the other questions in Matthew chapter 22 is, can we think too earthly or too heavenly about the kingdom of God? Now the good news is that Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. I think that's what we're going to see in all of Jesus' answers to these questions. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth, just like we sang, just like we read in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom to earth from heaven. And that actually means that, yes, the kingdom of God and the message is an invasion from heaven to earth. We can't divorce those two. We can't separate those two as if one is more important than the other in the eyes of God. But what we see in these questions is that over and over again, the questioners had too earthly a view of God's kingdom. Let's, let's dive into the first question, which is all, all about authority. That's practical, right? Let's be honest. Uh, verses 15 through 22 is a question about taxes. We all have questions we'd like to ask the God of the universe about taxes. But 
Have you ever thought to ask him if we should pay them at all? Like, I have lots of questions about my taxes. I'd love for him to just plop an answer down. Like, maybe just how much I owe. Let's just clarify once and for all how much this is. Secrets are being kept on all sides. No one knows for sure how much you owe. You take your best guess. I saw a meme last year that says, if you get it wrong, jail. I'd love to ask questions about taxes. They came and asked, not, no, not so much how much do we owe, how do we pay, how do we file, do I get this deduction or that one? They said, let's just start with a basic one, Jesus. Should we pay this at all? Should we pay this at all? And actually, their question about taxes was really an excuse to ask a deeper and more important question. Jesus, how can I live under the authority of Caesar and under the authority of God at the same time? Isn't that totally impossible? And Jesus, as always, gives a very wise answer. Well, how about you give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God? I heard this verse a lot growing up. And I don't know if it wasn't explained well or if I wasn't listening well, probably not listening well. But I feel like it was always an excuse to say, hey, there's two separate realms some of these realms, we're going to give things to God, but then sometimes you've got to leave that religious hat off and come and realize you live in the world. You've got to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Hey, you've got to acknowledge the world works in a certain practical kind of way, and sometimes you've got to just submit to that realm and almost leave God out of it. What we have in Jesus' short little wise saying is a simple truth with a very complex application. Simple truth. Well, God is in authority over everything. Jesus wants to look at the coin and says, whose image and inscription is on this? Now, he doesn't ask that about what God owns because the implication is his fingerprints are on everything. Caesar, as powerful as he might be, is not in authority over everything. His power has limits. There are places he can enforce laws and enforce taxes, and there are other places he cannot. God is clearly over and above Caesar. Now the complex application. What happens when Caesar is directly opposed to God? What if Caesar uses his authority to oppose God and his ways and asks us to do the same? What then? How do I give to Caesar the things that supposedly belong to Caesar while also giving to God if it seems like what I'm supposed to give to both of them actually contradict each other? On the one hand, our loyalties are not incompatible and impossible the people asking this question wanted Jesus to pit himself against either Jews who hated this tax and just a couple decades before had a revolt because this tax was enacted or he wanted, them to, he wanted him to say, uh, no, this tax is awful and sinful and, and Jesus to pit himself against the Roman Empire. But Jesus is wise. He knows they're trying to trap him in this. And Jesus says, hey, it, it's not always as conflicting as you might think. It's not impossible at times to show that, yes, Caesar does have authority over me, and yes, so does God. There is a real way to be loyal to both. Paying taxes to Caesar, the truth is, does not undermine God's authority over all things. We shouldn't pick a fight where there is no fight. However, at times, Caesar might lay claim to things that does not belong to him. There must be an order to our loyalty. And at times, that loyalty might cause us to be thrown into a fiery furnace, as Daniel's friends found out. 
At times, that loyalty may cause us to be beaten and persecuted and taken to Rome to await trial, like the Apostle Paul. At times, the order of that loyalty may cause us to be crucified upside down, like Peter was. Or maybe that loyalty uh, causes us, like happened all throughout history, to be burned at the stake for our beliefs. And this is because there are times where Caesar lays claim to what really belongs to God. But what's important, they want Jesus to pick a fight. They want to act like every time and always uh, Caesar and God are against each other. And what Jesus is saying is don't look for incompatibilities where none exist. We shouldn't create conflict. Think about Romans 12, 8. We should strive to live at peace with everyone. I think their question comes from a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is that they view the kingdom of God as far too earthly. You say, why? Well, when, we, when we embrace a kingdom that's way too earthly, we make one of two mistakes as it comes to authority. One, we see God in total competition with the rulers of this world. Or two, we see God totally aligned with the rulers of this world. You see that? If, if it's totally earthly, then it's God-verse. Or it's God-in. There's been a certain politician release a certain political video in which he uses very biblical language to refer to himself as a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep one who protects the, his flock. To which I think that is heresy to the highest degree. There is no room for that because there are no leaders, no matter how good, that are totally aligned with God because God transcends the earth. The kingdom is not totally earthly, it's otherworldly. So when we're thinking about authority in the kingdom of God, we can take a deep breath to say, wait a minute, no matter how good a leader is, they're not God's chosen one. There was one Messiah. And no matter how evil a leader is, God is not in competition with them. They are no threat to God's sovereignty. It's not black and white because the kingdom of God is not that earthly. Certainly some leaders are gonna be better and worse than others. Some are gonna promote more good than evil. Some are gonna promote more evil than good. I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. What I'm saying is when we belong to the kingdom of God and find our identity there, we are finding our identity in something that's on a whole nother plane. God is not rivals. I mean, go read Psalm 2. He sits in the heavens and laughs when the kings and rulers of the earth create their plans for how they're gonna overthrow God. He is over and above. That's Psalm 113 that we read earlier. And no matter how evil a leader is, they are no threat. Now, over the next 10 months, you will be invited to think that if you vote a certain way, that person is a threat to God's will and God's way in the world. You'll be invited to think that. You will be campaigned to, to think, if you go this direction, that's on both sides, if you go this direction, oh, this person's gonna, they might as well be the Antichrist. Friends, Jesus is on his throne. No matter who gets elected in 10 months, no matter who gets elected in 10 months, that will never change that. But as we see this whole concept of living under the authority of God and Caesar, we're reminded of the story of Jesus who lived this perfectly. Jesus brings heaven to earth and he ends up living under this tension as well. 
He lived, obviously, under the perfect authority of God. Go read the Gospel of John. He says over and over, I'm not doing anything except for what I see and hear from the Father in heaven. He is the one that has sent me, and it's his will that I am carrying out on this earth. But he was also under the authority of Caesar, which is precisely why he was put to death and crucified. So as we're trying to walk this tension, we can be comforted that our Savior has gone before us and he has lived this tension and he has shown us the way. So friends, don't, don't, don't think you have to make a kingdom that's too earthly. God is beyond this world and that can comfort us when our loyalties are put to the test. The next question in verses 23 to 33 is about hope. It's about the resurrection. Now, I was always taught to remember what's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you know what I'm gonna say? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see? So there you go. For the rest of your life, you can remember that cheesy saying. They bring a question to Jesus, and they quote Deuteronomy 25, verses five through six. Now, if you were with us in Advent, we preached through Ruth. This is the law that the book of Ruth is sort of built on. This whole idea of a family, kinsman, redeemer, that someone within the family can redeem a widow, bring her in, they can have a child, and that child can be the heir of his deceased, not really his father, but the family name can continue on. That's the point of that law, that a family's name would continue on after the patriarch's death. Now then their question applies this law to the resurrection. And they give him some scenario about seven brothers who each die with no offspring and then they make a leap then. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, they didn't believe in the resurrection at all. So maybe they were just setting Jesus up to say, look, this doesn't make any sense. The resurrection makes no sense. You claim there's gonna be a resurrection. It it doesn't make sense. So now are you saying... uh, God's going to allow this one woman to be married to seven men? What what are we doing here? But the resurrection they didn't believe in, it turns out, was not an accurate representation of the true resurrection. They assumed that resurrection life was way too similar to this life as they knew it. They had a view of God's kingdom that was far too earthly. And by doing this, it actually destroyed their hope. By having that kind of theology, it destroyed their hope beyond death. So Jesus brings them a correction. First, they deny the scriptures. Well, the scriptures actually do, in fact, teach resurrection. And they deny the power of God, who is able to raise people to an entirely new and different kind of life. They're denying the scriptures and the power of God. And Jesus corrects them by quoting Moses by quoting Exodus and God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter three, verse six and verses 15 and 16, where he says, I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the logic he's using here is, he doesn't say I was their God when they were living, he says I am their God today. And Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. So maybe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead to us, they're not still sitting here, but they appear to still be alive to God. And then he's using some implications here. And if they're alive to God now, God will resurrect them one day. So they must be dead on earth, but they're not dead to God because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Now, Jesus himself is going to walk this path for our hope. 
Do you understand that the reason they had this question is they were, they were so earth, they, they saw the next life through the lens of this life. So they could not imagine the next life being any different or better than all the categories and models for living that they knew right here and right now. How many of you have had your hope crushed because you projected current reality on the rest of your days? I mean, how many of you can think of a time that you have viewed the future only in terms of where you are right now? As if the only way God can answer a prayer is if he answers it in the categories you already know today. As if your future could only contain what you already know right now and you think it can't get any better. When we project our current realities onto the future, it will crush our hope. And when the Sadducees took this up, they projected their current realities into the future and into the next life, and it crushed their hope. They had way too earthly a view of God's kingdom. They didn't give it near the credit it's due for how heavenly God's kingdom is. But Jesus walks this path for us, doesn't he? He himself is going to be the first one to show us the way to the resurrection. Now, unfortunately, that way for him and for us involves excruciating death. For him on a cross, for us, death to ourself and everything we've ever wanted to be. Holding that up to him. Being crucified with him so that we can live with him. And he will die actually really soon in comparison to Matthew 22. But that will not be the end. The resurrection is not just something Jesus talks about. It's something he lives. He goes first. And because he lives it, we can too. Now, following Jesus can change your life. We started with that question. Is there any relevance for my life now? Yeah, it can and it will change your life. But if that's all that it does, then Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians that we are to be pitied more than anyone else on earth because we're missing the eternal value of the kingdom. We might say we believe in the resurrection, but do we really? The glorious truth of Scripture is that you will be raised from the dead to live and reign with Christ forever. Your body, broken, sick, vulnerable, the body you work really hard to take care of, the body we spend a lot of money on health insurance and medications, the body you don't understand why it works the way that it does and it frustrates you, the body you're ashamed of, the body that inexplicable problems have come upon, your body will be made new. Your hope is not to shed this body so that you never have to be confined to it again. The hope is that God will give you a new body through which the senses of that new body will be able to enjoy God's new heavens and new earth that he brings down, and we will live a very physical eternity with one another and with Jesus forever. You will have eyes to see the brightness of his glory. You will have mouths to taste the sweetness of the food that he sets before you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will have ears to hear the beautiful voices singing his praises forever. You'll have hands to grab and to hold with one another. Our kids ask me all the time, are you going to be my dad? 
in the new creation? I say, yeah, I will. But you won't need me to be your dad. You'll see me and you'll know me and you'll love me and I'll see you and I will know you and I will love you and we will hug, but I won't need to be your dad because we'll be with the Father. That is our future. So if we only stand up and proclaim a kingdom that changes this earth here and now, it will be wildly deficient for the hope that Jesus gives us. This question that they're asking him totally misses the point. You, you deny the scriptures and you deny the power of God, friends. He's the God of the living and he will make us live again. I hope this morning you can let the heavenliness, the otherworldliness of the kingdom of God be good news for you. The last question, life. How do we live? They come and they bring their top-notch lawyer. Harvey Specter. That was a test. See if anybody watches Suits. Come on. It's easier to look at a list to check off than it is to look at someone and ask what it means to love them. Imagine with me for a moment a husband comes home from work. He's got flowers in his hand. He hands the flowers over. And while the wife is like, I, my favorite flowers is I'm smelling them. And he takes out and he marks a line through a piece of paper. And then he gives her a hug, and he kisses her, and then he's marking through the sheet of paper. And then he puts it back. And then you see him for a moment. You can tell he's not sure what to do next. And he says, I love you so much. And she says, I love you too. And then he, he's, he's taking out his sheet of paper, and, and he's looking to see what's next. And he says, hey, is there anything I can do to help around the house? And while she's explaining, yes, actually, it's been a very hard day. There, there's some stuff upstairs, and the kids have been wild. I haven't been able to start dinner. There's some laundry that needs to be moved over. There are totally some things you can be doing. While she begins to explain that, he misses all of it because he's looking at the list, marking through what he just asked. Now, his checklist of rules are not the same as expressing genuine, heartfelt love for his wife when he gets home. We all know that. That's silly, right? But sometimes when we have a view of the kingdom of God that is so earthly, we would rather have rules and regulations than we would have a relationship. This was a major temptation for these Jewish leaders. This question, which command is the greatest, was probably hotly debated. There was no one clear answer. And Jewish leaders probably spent a lot of time thinking about this, debating this, discussing this, which one is the greatest. And Jesus does here in his answer what he does all through the Sermon on the Mount. He takes it to heart. We might long for a rule for every situation. We might want a checklist to follow to ensure we've done it all and left nothing out. But Jesus says that that is a list, not love. Now that's not to say lists are all bad. I've got to give caveats to make sure I'm not like, lists can be good. They can help you remember things you ought to remember. But it's possible to live a life without love that's full of lists to ensure you're getting things done rather than loving the people God's put before you. Jesus says it's, it's not programmatic, but it's personal. So he quotes two places in the Old Testament, one from Deuteronomy 6, one from Leviticus 19, to talk about 
the greatest two commandments are to love God and love others. This actually has worked its way into our mission statement as a church. We want to be a church community where we experience God's love in ways that free us to love God and love others. But if we view God's kingdom as too earthly, we will want it to primarily be about rules and regulations. Hey, get, give me the command. What, what's the most important command? Do you think it's all the commands around the, uh, maybe the, the atonement sacrifice so that our sins can be covered? What, what command, what, do you think it's one of the 10 commandments? Which one do you think it is? It's gotta be one of the ones about God, right? I mean, the other ones are important, but, but if we miss the one about God, maybe it's keeping this, maybe it's keeping this one commandment. That's the key to like everything else. What, what command is it? Do you, do you hear what's behind that question? What do I need to do right here, right now on this earth that's the most important thing? And Jesus says, let me give you a principle of something that will last not only through this life, but on into the next, and it's the principle of love. Now, Jesus is actually the one who takes all of this in himself in a perfect way. Because he is love. Love embodied. And he shows his love, Romans 5 tells us, by dying on the cross for us while we were still sinners. So Jesus, by telling us the most important thing you can do is actually love, is inviting us to embody the Jesus way of living. So do we see all throughout these three questions so far, it's been too earthly a view of the kingdom that has caused them to miss the otherworldliness, the divinity of the kingdom, the spirituality of the kingdom. And then we come to the last question, which is asked by Jesus. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? It's like undercover boss. Right here. They have no, like, just the, I'm imagining his disciples knowing, Matthew 16, that he's the Messiah. They know it, and they're listening to him go, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answer rightly, David's son. The son of David, who would be king to rule and reign forever, 2 Samuel 7. Now, it's interesting because they're not wrong, but their answer is just too simplistic because they also had too earthly a view of the kingdom. So Jesus brings up Psalm 110, which was written by David, in which David says, the Lord declared to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Lord. So, so, so wait, who is above David but below Yahweh? That doesn't make any sense. Who is he talking about here? They had too earthly a view of the Messiah that they missed that the Messiah was not just going to be a human ruler who was going to be king and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. They missed the fact that the Messiah was also going to be divine. He was going to be God in the flesh. And Jesus points out this inconsistency to them. So the question underneath taxes and resurrection and laws and commands, the question underneath all of that is the question for us today. What do you think about the Messiah? Please don't walk away from the Christian faith because you don't like the answers about taxes or resurrection or laws. Please deal with the heart of the issue. What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about him? 
Now, we're in danger of doing exactly what I think they do here. Too earthly a view. This is us, right? We have too earthly a view of the Messiah. I want some victory here and now. I mean, give me some glimpse of the blessings that you tell me I have. Give me somebody who can bring heaven to earth. Give me some politician that can make something happen that makes my life a little bit better. Give me a savior that can give me some comfort, some protection. Give me a savior that's got maybe some material blessings. Give me a Messiah that looks the part, shows me victory, and defeats my enemies now. I want an earthly Messiah to make my life better today. Not just one who promises me a get out of jail free card after I die. Now the beauty of Jesus is that he is wonderfully and mysteriously both. He is a fully human, earthy Messiah. He walked this earth. He got hungry. He cried real tears. He hugged his friends and loved his mom. He's real, earthy Messiah who was sent from heaven as the eternal son of God. And I think in that mixture of the incarnation is also the mixture of the kingdom of God. We can't get off into one of these pitfalls on both sides of thinking the kingdom is only earthly or only heavenly. It's this wonderful and beautiful picture of both. And what happens when we embrace Jesus is we find that he empowers us to live under the authorities in this world while maintaining loyalty to God alone. He empowers us to do that because that's exactly what he's done. He actually gives us hope that this life is not the end but that the next life will be a resurrected and redeemed continuation of this one because he's gone first. He enables us to love others in this world because he first loved us through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus brings the kingdom. He he stepped out of kingdom with all authority of heaven and came down to earth. He, Psalm 113, stooped from above the heavens to the earth so that beggars could become royalty. And now Jesus invites us into his kingdom to be filled with his spirit so that we can live in this new way that he's opened up. We don't have to bring the kingdom down on our own. We don't have to shackle the kingdom of God to earthly matters only. We don't have to settle for an earthly kingdom because we have Jesus. Let's pray.